Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. I'm your weekly host, Scott Miller, and I serve as the interviewer every week with new guests that come to us, sometimes live in the studio and sometimes via satellite on our screen. Each week we try to pick someone that's got an interesting perspective on leadership development. Most times these names aren't necessarily household names. These are people who maybe have written a book or they're an academic, a CEO, someone who's learned something especially relevant and we choose to bring a spotlight to them. And then occasionally, like today, we have someone who is a household name. And our guest today is Bill Engvall, the master communicator. Bill, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you, Scott. Good to see you. I have never had the word CEO and I noticed you said CEO, academic, and leaders, and those three words have never been associated with me. Well, they are today. I, so yeah, today I'm a CEO. Today I, today I say you are a master communicator because mm-hmm. you are an expert at communication. Your chosen medium, as most people know you, is through entertainment and through comedy, right? You're right. a professional comedian, and people have followed your career for 20 years. I'm delighted you're here. It's an honor you on, to be here. Great to have you on set. You're a resident of Utah. Yep. So welcome to Franklin Covey. I'd like to take a couple of minutes and have you share first kind of your journey. How did you come into becoming one of the world's most renowned comedians? Well, Scott, I wish I had a great story for you. Um, Basically what happened was I was in college and discovered women and beer and studies went out the window. So I left school uh, and moved back to Dallas. Uh, where I rented a little apartment and I was spinning records in a nightclub and they opened up a comedy club and my friend who was a bouncer uh, at the club, at the disco, uh, said, let's go watch Amateur Night. So I thought, well, let's go down there and watch some guys stink it up. And you were early early 20s at this point. Yeah, early 20s. And so uh, we got down there and uh, a couple of rounds of liquid encouragement went through us and they talked me into going up on stage. And so I went up and I just did five minutes on being a DJ in a nightclub and just made up stuff, really. And people laughed. And I remember thinking, well, this is kind of cool. Because I was a huge comedy fan, because my dad always had Bob Newhart records and, uh, and I was a big fan of Carlin and Pryor and Steve Martin and all that. So, but I, you know, the thought of it being a job was just not even on the radar. So I finished my set, and uh, the lady who owned the comedy club said, would you like to be the house MC?" And to show you where I was in my life, I said, what does it pay? Hmm. And it paid 25 bucks a week more than I was making at the disco. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> and so uh, I said, what do I have to do? She goes, you pick the comics up at the airport on Monday, you MC the shows throughout the week, and then you drive them back to the airport. And I thought, well, this is a great job. It fulfilled all my job requirements. I could work at night, drink on the job, and sleep in late. So it was the perfect job for me. Uh, but what I didn't realize was that on another level, I, was, I worked with the greats. I worked with Seinfeld and Shanling and Leno and uh, Eddie Murphy and, and all these people. And, and basically through, I guess, osmosis, I kind of learned how to write, a, write jokes and, write a, and, and communicate. Uh, my message with the audience because comedy is really different uh, in the sense of communication because if you go hear a band and they play a song you don't like, you you don't leave. But with comedy, it's very personal. Hmm. People take it very personally. And uh, so if they don't like a joke that you do, they don't like you, they don't like the way you think, they don't like your religion, they like nothing about you. Audiences are fickle. Very fickle. And, uh, but I... There was something about it that just, you know, uh, I never thought of it as a job, 
until probably, I started in 80, probably until 97 did wow. I really think of it as wow. a job. Uh, but what I learned, uh, and we'll get into it more, is that there's comedian, and I was just, I didn't work at this, I just was blessed with this ability to relate to an audience. Uh, which is why I also do a lot of corporate jobs right. we'll because that, they right? know uh, that I can. And it's a, if you're not, there, there's a lot of comics that we call them comics comics. Those are the guys that play to the guys in the back of the room. The other comics, everybody goes, oh, wow, he's hip. Mm-hmm. I learned really early on that's not the people who pay your bills. So I learned. It's gratifying, yeah, but it's not. Yeah, yeah it's right. great for your peers to think yeah. you're hip. But uh if the audience is just staring at you, then it really you're not going to get booked back. Sure. Tell me the role that blue-collar comedy played in helping launching oh. your brand and remind the audience kind of who was in that and blue how that collar, worked yeah. out for you. Blue-collar was probably the biggest thing that happened in my career. Uh, it was me and Jeff Foxworthy and Ron White and Larry the Cable Guy. Mm-hmm. And Even you call him Larry the Cable yeah, Guy. Damn. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which that's that's how I make him mad, as I call him by his real name. Uh, but this thing uh, got put together by our management team, and it was surreal. An interesting story about it. It became the the largest tour in the history of comedy. Uh, but an interesting story about how how things work out. We were supposed to do our first show in Orlando, Florida. I'm from where I'm from. Yeah, and. Uh, Something happened, and the show couldn't go on that night, so they moved it to Omaha, Nebraska. Hmm. And the opening night, we sold 9,000 tickets to a comedy show, which was unheard of. Years later, uh, we went back to Orlando, and it was the, the slowest date we did. So if we'd have started in Orlando, Blue Collar probably wouldn't have happened because they'd have pulled the plug on it. But uh, Blue Collar became... It, it literally was the perfect storm. Hmm. Uh, we were right... The audience was right. right. Timing. Timing. Everything right. was right. Uh, and it was, like I said, surreal that you would, we were selling, we hold, there were, we held the record in Nashville for selling out the arena in one day. And then, like, two years ago, Bon Jovi broke it. Okay, the words Bon Jovi and blue-collar comedy do right. not go together <laughs> right. at all. But that w- it was just, because we... I think what we did is we touched an audience that had been largely overlooked mm. by media. Because in the media, especially in show business, it's the East and West Coast, and that's all that matters. They don't take into consideration the billions of people right, that in live the in the middle of the country right. who buy all the products mm-hmm. and do a. So, uh, and it was just a perfect match. Uh, you know, Jeff and I were kind of the same. Uh, we, were, we were both, a, like a, a, what's the old saying, a lighter shade of pale. Mm-hmm. Because he's a family guy, I'm a family guy. He's mm-hmm. a clean comic. I'm a... Mm-hmm. Ron was kind of the bad boy, mm. uh, and and Dan was what the tour really needed. Meaning Larry. Larry, yeah. Right. Larry was uh, he was I don't want to say the cartoon, but he was sure. the guy that yeah. I mean the get or done thing just exploded. Uh, what was the dynamic like with the four of you in terms of the teamwork? With it was great. And... It really was great, and I'll tell you why because we were friends. Before this, yeah, we all knew each other and we all respected each other's stand up. And you're still friends. Still friends. Uh, you collaborate at all still? Unfortunately, locale makes it a little difficult. We, you know, text and yeah. email and stuff. But yeah, you know, and and I always get asked, are we going to get back together? And I used to, I always say, I never say never, but it'd have to be. 
My theory is you leave them wanting more, which will then, as we get on further into Spice well, Girls did it. Yeah, well, Beverly Hills and the Eagles, Eagles have done it yeah. <laughs> immensely. They've retired 30 times, I think. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the thing was, is, Scott, you don't want to go to a town, because our audience has gotten older, we've gotten older, and you don't want to go to a town where you sold 10,000 tickets and now you're selling 2,000, mm. because in an arena... That's very evident. Right, right. It's your brand. Yeah. Let's talk about some lessons you've learned as a communicator. Mm -hmm. So you've been on radio, television, and movies. Obviously, you've mastered a stage. You mentioned you do a lot of corporate events mm -hmm. also. I'll talk about that in a moment. Okay. What are, you know, our main audience really are professionals that are trying to build and sustain their leadership skills. Right. And a key contributor to being a great leader is being able to listen and to communicate. And too many times we as leaders confuse communicating with just talking and not listening. Right. What role does listening play when you're on stage, even perhaps in your preparation as a, as a comedian? I think, I, I, I don't, uh, listening is a very underrated word um, in the sense that it's not always just listening f for words, but listening to reactions. Hmm. Uh, like for me, I can listen to an audience without them saying a word. I can tell when a joke's working. Because their body language. Body or, language, yeah. uh, you know, just, and there's, it's interesting because like I said, because of the amount of corporate work I do, I see a lot of CEOs, uh, marketing people get up and talk, and they don't know what their audience is. You know, they've got salespeople, they've got every uh, correspondents from right. all over the country, all over right. the world. Right. Um, and uh, they're just delivering their message. They're just delivering their the message, audience. and it's just right. reading off a prompter. Right. And you, I can look out in the audience and see people. You know, they can't yawn because they don't want to get fired. Right. But uh, I'll tell you a, a great story about the communications. Um, I got a, hired for a job down in Florida again, uh, and the guy called me and said, "Listen, I've got this international business, and we want you to perform." And I said, "Okay." He said, "It's a hundred guys." And I said, "Okay, out of that hundred, how many are international? How many are American?" And he goes, oh, oh, it's like 90% uh, American, 10% international. I said, okay. I get down there, and it's just the opposite. It's 90% international and 10% American. Scott, I did 15 minutes, and there was not a titter. Yeah. Not a snicker. Because your timing a, wasn't... They didn't yeah, understand. They, just, they, right. they, they are from other countries. Yes. They don't understand it. Yeah. And so... But you After, probably realized it. I knew, and, and I was also young, and trust me, there was sweating. Yeah. Um, and it, at one point, out of the pitch blackness of this room, and I, it, was, it was like a Fellini film. It was just a spotlight on me and this pitch black room. And out of the darkness, I hear this voice go, do you do any South African jokes? You're like, and yeah, I, I got said, a whole litany of them. I said, dude, I'm from <laughs> Texas. I, I, South, I thought it was just Africa. <laughs> And so another 10 minutes went by, and, I, and literally in my head, this was the game plan. I said, I'm, I'm going to get off stage. I'm going to say, just fly me home. Don't worry about paying. This is not. And so I said goodnight, and the guy came up to me. He goes, why would you get off stage? I go, they're not laughing. He goes, they're British. They don't laugh. Yeah. And I said, then why would you hire a comedian? But I heard what he said, and I said, all right, let's try something. And then what I did was I went table to table sat down, drank a beer with them, told them the dirtiest jokes I knew, and they thought it was the greatest show they'd ever seen in their life. Mm. So in that sense, I listened. I listened to yeah, what... Right. They, they, don't, they, don't, they don't weren't familiar with my lifestyle and, yeah. you know, and all this. And I think that sometimes that, that uh, 
CEOs or COOs or whatever, and I know a lot of it's, it's dull material, but they've got to get it out there. But I, I always thought that it would be a great position in a company, and I, I think companies should think about this, it is on a, on a, uh, as an independent contractor, hire a, a comedian that you feel like is your style of people. Like say if someone, like I'm very much a storyteller. And then you go and you sit down with the CEO and say, let me see your speech. And you start... Right, coach them for the Coach them for it. Because yeah. nobody is above learning. I've learned, that's one of the things I've learned is that you're never above learning. And just because, you know, I've reached a certain level in my career, it's still incumbent upon me to get my message across in a way that people leave Feel, in my business, feel, I, my goal is to make people leave feeling better than they did when they got there. Yeah. As opposed to, and then like a CEO, I would assume you would want people, when you get done speaking, you want people, this, this is why I work this is the for this company. I'm, on it. This, I'm with you. You speak at a lot of corporate events. Mm-hmm. You're there to provide some relief, some, a respite or such. Right. Can you think of one where a CEO has delivered, he or she, a compelling speech, and you say, no, that was good. That was out of the norm. You connected with the audience. They were still professional, but they really did something unique that was different than all the other ones that put you into a sleep. Because um, you probably watched them, right? You, yeah, you there on was one. Or... I can't remember the guy's name, but it was a uh, it was a grocery, a food company, and they invited all the mom and pop grocers in for their their big yearly thing. And this and he this guy, we walked in. And there's a party band on stage. And there's a guy with a sombrero on dancing up there. And I said, what is that? And she goes, oh, that's our CEO. And these people loved him because he became one of them. Yeah, he was relatable. He was relatable. Right. And I thought, right. that's, that's a very smart yeah. man. Because I think sometimes, whether they do it consciously or subconsciously, I think when you start putting CEO, COO, CFO, also it's kind of like... Uh, they forget who's yeah. I think you're absolutely Joe, right. Joe, the the yeah. bolt maker, and Gina, the the you know the person that does all the who's emails. Selling, selling. Are your right. sales is to let them know that you didn't you didn't start off being a CEO. You were one of those people. Yeah. And I think that's where I think that's where a lot of uh, executives. Uh, in, in the corporate world could benefit is to remember where you yeah. came from. Superb insight, because I think there becomes a natural separation oh, yeah. between the C-suite and the company. I can't laugh. That's, that's Mr. Smith. That's exactly, that's exactly right. But if Mr. Smith yeah. walks up there and starts off with a joke yeah. or, or some kind of... you know, It's funny, because I, I, sometimes I'll do... It, it, this is a rule that I have. If people hire... I've had people hire me, and they say, here's what we want to do. We're going to introduce you as a an auditor kind of guy that we've brought in. And I go, no. And they said, why not? And I go, because those people can tell you right off the bat, I'm not from this. Because there's a, there's a language. Sure, there's a, a culture. Yeah, culture palpable. of this business. And if right. I walk up there going, yeah, we've studied your book, like, he's not one of us. You know? yeah. So I just say, just let me do my stuff. And, and it always, it knock on wood, so far. it usually works. Tell us about the preparation process that you go through when you're giving uh, a speech when you're on stage entertaining, I'm, I'm guessing you have some research you do. What do you do well that translates into our audience as they're preparing to give a presentation or a speech that you think would be helpful to know? Um, I think you've got to be self-effacing. You've got to, you've got to portray to them that, look, 
yeah, I'm at this position, but here's the mistakes I've made. They want to know you're like them. And, I, and so what I do, when, I, when I'm writing a, a, a bit or a routine, I always bring it back on me. In other words, I don't say it like, like if, like if I make a joke about my wife, the joke is maybe is about, but not you, at her expense. It's not at her Ultimately, expense. It's right. me being the idiot. Right. Um, right. And I'm not saying executives should say, "Look, I'm an idiot." You know, but you've got to be vulnerable. Right. They've got to know that you've been through them. Mm-hmm. You've been through this. Mm-hmm. You didn't. You know. That's your brand, isn't it? I mean, your brand is yeah. the. Probably the ultimate related person, the guy. The guy the I always try to write my stuff as like, I could be your next door neighbor. If right. you didn't know what I did, I could be a doctor, I could be a plumber, I could be a sheet We kind of were. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were. Uh, and I think that the other thing that I think is important, and I try to do this, is you got to meet them. You got to meet the people and shake their hands and say, "How's your family doing? What's going do on?" Do you do that? Yeah, at, at, like at meet before and or after? Or before I'll, you do. You know, we people get to come back and meet me, and and, and I always ask how they're doing. Yeah, because they're all like, you know, and you want to put them at ease. You know, I think that's the key for put your audience at ease. Let them know this is all right. We're all right. You know, what advice would you give the professional who's got a fear of public speaking? We know it's a very real thing. In yeah. psychological, it's physical, it's emotional, it's neurological. And you do this all the time for a living. Now, you may be a naturally charismatic person, and it's not a fear for you. Any advice you would give professionals to say, relax on this or don't worry about that? What have you learned that's not true about the fears we make up about public speaking? Well, Seinfeld had the greatest line ever. They did a survey of people's top five fears. Death was number two. <laughs> right. Speaking in public was number yeah, one. Right. And Seinfeld's answer was, so you'd rather be the guy in the box than the guy giving the eulogy. Yeah. And it's true. But what I would say is, you know, I go back to this again and again, Scott, is that if you're scared, if you're not scared, if, you're, if you have a fear of speaking in public, let them know that. Let them Part know. of the vulnerability, relatability yes. piece, right? Say, look, just, yeah. I know I make, like, yeah. I make multi-billion dollar decisions, but you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm shaking in my pants right now. Yeah. And, that, and immediately people go, okay, all right, all right. He's, yeah, I would be relate. too. I would be too, yeah. That's right. Yeah, uh, yeah it's good the, uh, And the other thing, <laughs> don't tell them. I, this is a true story. I was getting ready to, I literally was standing on the side of the stage, and the CEO was up there introducing me, and the guy says, don't say the company's name. I said, what? He goes, don't, he goes, we've just been bought and half these people don't know they don't have a job tomorrow. Don't tell me that right before I go on stage because right. I don't, A, it's none of my business and, uh, and, and B, you know, it's like you've lied to these people. Yeah. You've already lied to them. Uh, but I, I do think that people just in general want to know, you know, like one of the biggest comments I get is they go, it's like you live in my house and that's what people want to know. Just make it, let me know you're like me. Even I know you're this. I know you're the CEO, but let me know that you put your pants on just like I do. You know, don't come off high and mighty. It doesn't do anything but people just go. You know, anything you do to course correct during a presentation. Oh. So you're in. You think you've got it. You're going to nail it. Mm-hmm. And you, a couple minutes in, you realize this isn't going so well. Yeah. Any tips you might share with the audience to say, here's how you can subtly course correct or regroup. When it's not going well. Well, that, it's, that's, that's very difficult to do, especially in comedy, because if I've got a set routine that I'm going to do for them, and yeah. you, or the worst part is they laugh really hard at one joke, and you don't have any more jokes in that 
on that subject. Yeah. Um, but I think it goes back to, uh, you know, just make a joke about it. If they're not, if, they're, if you didn't get the response, you know, just say, well, I thought that one would do better than it did. And they'll, I guarantee you they'll laugh. Do you tend to prepare uh, a set sequence? I know that Joan Rivers, I think, used to have giant... I saw um, yeah. like poster boards all across the stage. She had all of her jokes down, and no one knew that. Like, they were all right. taped down. It was quite um, a science to her, but comedy. Several people do that. I, I can't. I, I just feel like it's got to come from your soul. You know, it's like... I agree. It's, I can have papers written all over, but if I'm out in the audience... I can see you going, yeah, you know, right. and you know it. Uh, I think it's also lack of preparation. The same for PowerPoint. I'm, I'm getting ready to give a speech at Ugh, Deer Valley, Utah, and the uh, the conference is really angry at me because I haven't loaded up my PowerPoint yeah. under their website. And I finally called the lady and I said, "Listen, I said I don't use PowerPoint. I said I perhaps am either the the end of a generation or the start of a new one. But I don't want to be slave to what's on the screen behind me and my cadence be there. I just want to talk from the heart." I want to connect with the audience. Right. And she actually handled it quite well. I said, but you're going to get any slides from me. I don't use PowerPoint. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a, I, I don't know. It's not your medium anyway. But I, I, Like I have yeah. a friend uh, named Don McMillan who is a wonderful comedian uh, who does his whole show as a PowerPoint. But it's huh. a PowerPoint of, this is, she'll put it on the screen, goes, and it'll show a diagram of a mall. And it say, this is me shopping. And the PowerPoint goes to one store and it goes back out to the parking lot. Yeah. He said, now this is my wife. Yeah. And he clicks it and it, there's, it's just like this. Yeah. But he's... It a, works for his medium. Yeah, his medium. Right. Uh, yeah. But for me, no. You know, there, there, there's two things I don't do. I don't do slides. And I don't do... I don't perform in a tuxedo. I always, I always hate when I hear... That's, that's the other thing. If you're going to have a corporate event, don't make it black tie. Because people, as soon as you button that top button... That's the standard. That's the culture. Yeah. Done. Yeah. You've done a lot of different things. You've, your brand's pretty diverse. You've done mm -hmm. television and movies and stand-up and such. Do you think that was helpful, building your brand, kind of doing different mediums versus saying, I'm going to have a TV program that's going to run for oh, yeah, 10 yeah. episodes? Was Without it deliberate? Yeah, I uh, literally, I mean, back in, the, book? back in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, there was probably no less than five to six stand-up shows on television, yeah. you know, Evening at the Improv, right. Uh, right. One Night Stands. And I did every one of them. And my friends would go, why are you doing all these? I go, so that people know who I am. Yeah, for you it was brand recognition. Yeah, it was yeah. like, I, and, and it's interesting, you know, you talk about the brand recognition. I also think, you know, I get people say to me all the time, how do I create a brand? How do I create a catchphrase like, here's your sign, or, you know, you might be a redneck, or right. get her done. And I always tell people, I go, you don't. The audience dictates it. Mm. You know, you, especially in business, I think, too, is you've seen products that they try to force down your throat, and you just go, it's just not me. Find out who your audience is. I think that's, you know, that's another major thing, I think, is who's your audience? You know, like for me, my audience is not going to be the, the millennials. My audience is people who are parents. Yeah. They're Probably my demographic is probably 35 to 85. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's important too, especially in the business world, is know who you're marketing to. If you're selling an axe sharpener, you're probably not going to go sell that in New York. You know, uh, So I think it's important that you know what your product is, who you're selling it to, and then 
talk to them on, uh, uh, on their level. Tell us about Dancing with the Stars. So you had an episode, a season on Dancing with the Stars. Why did I know this was coming up? You're fairly uh, well-known for the cartwheel. T- tell me what happened with, um, why did you do that? Well, why was that a good thing? Dancing with the Stars, uh, in, a, in a short story, because uh, otherwise we'll be here another 45 minutes, um, is I had torn my meniscus in my right knee, and I had surgery, and I was in bed the next day, uh, and you, you know when you know when you have surgery and the, the anesthesiologist says, "Look, don't make any important decisions for 24 hours." Right. There, there's a lot of truth to that. Oh, is this when you accepted? Yeah, <laughs> I I was in bed still floating with Captain Demerol. Yeah. And uh, Dancing with the Stars called and said, "We want you to be on the show." Yeah. And to show you what an idiot I am, I, I literally said, "Yeah, I could judge that." Hmm. You know, why else would they be calling me? And they said, "Well, actually, we want you to be a contestant." And this well, right, there was like a set yeah, panel of judges. Yeah, I thought I'd just be okay. a celebrity judge, okay. you know. Yeah. Uh, and they said we want you to be a dancer on the show. And I, I'll be honest with you, Scott, I don't know if it was me or the Demerol, but the next thing word I heard was sure. Yeah. And so I was on. And the reason I got so far on it was not because of my dancing ability. It was because I figured out what it was. Again, I listened. I watched. I listened. It's a popularity contest. If it was a dance competition, none of us would have been asked to do you it. You made the audience fall in love with you. I was and one your of partner. them. I yes. was one of them. I was the cheering j- you on, joking around. Right. Uh, probably, and you know, it's interesting because probably the biggest thing that helped me on that show was the fact that my age and my dance partner's age was so far apart. Right. Br- British partner, right? Yeah. It right. became more of a da- dad daughter yes, dance. Right. There wasn't any of the weird right. like, ooh, I wonder right. what's going on. You know. Right. And I just didn't play the game. You know, I just said, they said, who are, you, who are you scared of? I go, nobody. I go, I'm just trying to get through a damn dance. How far did you get? I got to the finals. That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. It was, did I actually think, uh, I think there was, there was actually wagers in Las Vegas as to when I would go. <laughs> did your wife come out and watch the show? Every, every she week. She did, yeah. yes. And that was the other thing, that, that it, somehow, I don't know how, but somehow I, I just get this message like, I would dance with this smoking hot 24-year-old British girl. But at the end of the dance, I ran over and kissed this 55-year-old well, woman. I've met your wife. There's a good yeah. reason. That's and right. every woman in America went, oh. Yeah, right. Why can't you him. be like that? Yeah, that's right. For you, it was a little bit of an acting gig. It totally was right? acting. Yes. Totally was yeah. acting. Yeah. What did you learn from hosting and starring in the Bill Engvall show? Uh, you had a comedy series. What did you learn from that? That was the greatest experience. Uh, next to Blue Collar. I mean, that's the... That's the uh, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, that's the holy grail for a comedian. Yeah. Is I remember standing outside of a studio, and when those big doors, they move stuff in and out, and it said the Bill Engvall show. And I just stood there, and I just, I go, oh, my gosh. I go, this, I, I made it. I made it. This is what everybody shoots for. Not just, I'm on a sitcom. It's a sitcom with my name, name on, on it. it. right? And I, I tell you, again, back to the listening and back to making people feel comfortable. Before the show started, I got the whole cast together. And we went out to dinner. And I stood up at the table and I said, every day you should come to this set with a smile on your face. I said, we're not curing cancer. We're not splitting the atom. We're making a sitcom. You're going to drive onto the lot, and there's going to be a parking space with your name on it. And there's going to be a little production assistant that's going to come up and say, Mr. Ingvall, here's your coffee just the way you like it. And I go, and you should enjoy every moment of that. 
And I think sometimes what I see in the corporate world is the enjoyment factor is gone. Hmm. A lot of, I'll tell you an interesting story about just that point right there. One day I had, I, I landed at the airport and the car service picked me up and I was, and I always talk to people. I love talking to people because A, you find out fascinating things and B, sometimes there's material there. Mm-hmm. But I was talking to the driver and uh, I said, I said, what, tell me about you, what do you do? I know you drive, but if you, he goes, he goes, you know, he goes, I was the CEO of a company. And he said, and I just, every day I went in and there was this problem and this fire to put out and I had to get this done and this done. He goes, and I just got tired of it. He said, and so I gave my retirement. I, I said, I'm leaving. He said, I became a limo driver. And he said, it's the best job I ever had in my life. He said, he said, I just stopped enjoying it. And I think that's, that's a real key to people that I think is that they don't spend enough time. If you're not having fun at it, guess what? Amen. You're not going to be fun to work right, for. Right. And you're not going to get the best production out of your people. I think there's a, a one question that you have to, and I ask myself this all the time, how much is enough? You know, what's, what, and are you happy? And I'm all... if you can't define how much is enough, you'll never have no, enough. No, no, if you, if, you right. know, uh, <laughs> I have a friend... Well, he's he's a workaholic, and I and I said, "What's it? Give me a number for you to quit." And he sat there for a second, and he goes, "65 million." And I said, "What?" I go, "65 for you personally?" He goes, "Yeah." And I go, "Okay, I think maybe you need a reality check. There's businesses that don't make 65 million total gross." Because I, he goes, "It's interesting because my manager asked me that question." When I signed with him, he said, what, how much would it take for you to quit? And I said, if I had $3 million in the bank, because that could get me through the rest of my life. So $3 million and $65 million. So I think there's, you have to set reasonable goals. Sure. But again, back to what, how much is enough. You know, it's hard to say, but if, if, if you... Sometimes I think uh, there's some, the old saying that the older you get, the wiser you get. That I remember my, my, uh, my granddad always saying, he said... He said, you know, and everybody's heard this before, is that if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. And that's kind of where I am with comedy. And I think that to any of the leaders out there that, you know, the corporate world that, you know, are you happy? I mean, are you really, are you, you know, yeah, you're happy when you get the check, but is it worth, you know, what are you losing? And I think sometimes that's where I've become now in my life I'm at that stage where I think, you know, I'm really, really happy. You know, I can, if I, if, if I left this business tomorrow, nobody's going to say, ooh, you almost made it. Cause, and I think the other thing, Scott, is that I think the term success needs to be redefined. I think sometimes now in this world in the, that we've, we've reached the point where success has become a monetary value. Mm-hmm. And it's not. Success to me is... Am I able to put a roof over my family's head? Am I able to put food on the table? And is me and my family happy? And if you can answer all three of those yes, then you're a success. Well, you've had an interesting year because you shared within the last year you were invited to be the officiant of a a family's friend's wedding. Walk us through that because this is kind of a bit of a, not an epiphany, but it's a bit of a maturing year for you, is it? Yeah, very much a mature. That's a very good way to put it. It's a very mature year. Because you were highly immature last year. Yeah, really. I was just, ugh. The, uh, you know, I, it goes back to college. I didn't finish college, and it always bothered me. 
and so uh, one day I was bored and I thought, you know what, I'm going to go online and get ordained as a minister, just in case friends or family wanted to do it. Uh, and I got the certificate. There was no, no one had asked you. You just decided. Yeah, you I just decided. Yeah, yeah. Woodpeckers weren't yeah. there that day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Woodpeckers to... were not hitting yeah. the wood. And, you know, the highway patrol wasn't hiring. Right. So, <laughs> uh, so the certificate came and I thought, well, and I looked down and I thought, well, I don't want to be that guy. I want to be the guy who knows what he's talking about. You know, so that, and so I am now enrolled back in college online and getting a degree in Christian studies. Uh, and I'm really a fan of theology the history of the Bible and, and everything. And uh, it's interesting because <laughs> before my son went off to college, I sent off for my transcripts because I think my grade point average at the time when I was in my late teens and early 20s was, I think the high was 1.7. <laughs> um, and I said it in front of him and I said, this is what happens when you don't go to class. I said, all you got to do is show up and something will sink in. And now I'm back in school, and I've got a three nine. Wow! And uh, but also it goes back to the other one. I'm I'm enjoying it, and it's also kind of affected my. I think this is another really good point uh, to to leaders out there is. It's affected my comedy, because I now know why I'm doing what I'm doing, and I'm not saying go re-enroll in college, but. Don't think that just one avenue is 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 good enough. Your curiosity. Yeah, or, if something right. turns you on, go. You don't know what it, you know. And so now, uh, I'm not only doing comedy on stage, and I'm so much more comfortable in my own skin. Um, but like in November, I'm giving a sermon at the church that I grew up in, which is a very cool moment. Will be a very cool moment. Uh, in Texas. In Texas, and actually, actually, no, actually, in Winslow, Arizona. I see. Me and, the, me and uh, the Eagles were the only people that ever came out at Winslow, Arizona. <laughs> and the Eagles weren't even there. It was Jackson Brown. Uh, but I think that sometimes we get so tunnel vision on something that... I always told my son, I said, life will show you what you're supposed to do. But you've got to be open to it. And so if something shows up and you think, oh, that might... You never know how it's going to yeah. intertwine and, and, and further your career. And I feel I've added years now to my stand-up career because I now know kind of how where I want to be. You know, an interesting story about the blue collar thing, going back to that, is it, I think we did that thing for six years. Uh, but probably the first three, I didn't enjoy it because I was too busy trying to be Jeff. Because Jeff had skyrocketed. You know, he was huge. And that's the only bar that I had to compare to. You know, I had passed the club comics and I was so big. Oh my God, Scott, you would have laughed. I used to have this rock and roll opening music playing, lights going. And it just, you know, I was trying anything hmm. just to get, figure out who I was. And all of a sudden this other avenue kind of opened up and I kind of realized, just be who you are. I was gonna ask you what the key to your success was, but I think I know. And I think your, your unique value proposition, if you will, to use a marketing term, is your relatability. It's you, you put as little space between you and the audience as is possible. I, I agree 100% with that. And in fact, I think that then dovetails into uh, corporate. I, true. I, th- I, th- I think You've it's got to be re- it's true. If you can't relate to those yeah. people there, right. they're if not they going to. They can't relate to you as well. They can't too. relate to the you. More they can, the more they find you relatable, it yeah. doesn't mean that you still can't be the CEO or the CFO. You, and you, you got have plenty your own of duties. That's right. You know, and like I always tell, you know, I always say the good ones, and I've seen a few of them that do this, uh, 
you know, this guy's the CEO of a multi-billion dollar corporation. And he, I'll tell you where it was. It was a, there was an aircraft uh, engine people that make parts for the, right. and they hired me to come in and great, great group. But the thing that really impressed me the most was the CEO. I watched him and we were sitting there talking and one of the underlings came up and just said, he really enjoyed the conference. You know, thank you very much. And he goes, what are you doing? And I goes, no, I'm going to go back to my room. He goes, let's go get a beer. And you could see this guy like, okay, am I being punked here? Yeah. But now that guy, and he and the CEO went off to the bar and he said, I'm a beer. Huh. And he became, because the CEO became one of them. Yeah, right. And, and I'm not saying you got to go have a beer with everybody. But, you know, it doesn't hurt. You know, maybe you, you do. Uh, you know, I think one of the greatest shows on television right now is Undercover Boss. I love it. Stephanie McMahon oh. was on our program a few weeks ago. And when I saw her from WWE on the program, I, I had tears in a hotel room. Yeah. I was so captivated. I agree. People, because what, and the thing is not so much, what they do is, you know, is great. But the thing I watch is, as a CEO or a, uh, an executive, you get, you get, there becomes that gap and you don't see what's going on. Mm-hmm. You're not there every right. day t- right. stacking the tires and mm-hmm. you're just up there trying to get more accounts. You think you know, but you don't. You don't know. Right. And I say, Take your time. Take the time to be, to go down and visit with them. Put on a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. Lose the suit. Tell me what's going on. Yeah. Tell me what what can I do to make your job easier? And I'd be damn surprised if you don't walk away there with reams of paper saying, "Well, we could use this." Right, or we. Right. Good advice. I didn't prep you for this, but I want to end with a mistake. Is there a mistake you've made on stage or? With an event that, you, that you'd like to share appropriately and kind of what you learned from it. Yes, there, there was one. There's one that's clear. Very clear. I was doing my show, and I am the most non-confrontational person in the world. I just, I don't like it. And I was doing my show, and the show was going great. And I looked down, and there was a woman sitting on the front row, and I said, oh, my God. I said, I had talked about my kids. And I said, when does your baby do? And she said loud enough for the entire audience to hear, I'm not pregnant. Oh, my Lord. There is no escaping that. Yes. Everybody heard it. Everybody's looking at me like, what are you going to do? And I just said, that's my, I'm sorry. Right. I just said, I'm sorry. Yeah. And now I have a rule that unless the woman's water breaks right in front of me, yes. I'm still not going to assume she's pregnant. <laughs> in fact, you mentioned to me in a previous conversation that there are a couple topics that you absolutely don't go to oh. because you will alienate Immediately religion and politics. That's it. Religion you and politics. You never talk about Trump. You don't talk about nope. religion, including your own. Nope. I am that yellow line in the middle of the road. Right. The Because uh, it's just not worth it. It's not worth it. Like I told you, even if I write the greatest political or religious joke, 50% are alienated. Because yeah. especially in today's society. You kind of can't recover because you said no, they're fickle. I've made no. a judgment. and yeah. uh, You know, it's... Uh, and again, I think it's like sometimes... Comics, I've seen it happen all the time. They get bigger. They 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 think they're bigger than they are, hmm. and you're not. You're not as immune as you think. I you would are. tell every entertainer out there yeah. in the world. I go, nobody cares about your political views. Yeah, sing your song. What's next for you? Uh, I think Bill Engvall on Ice would be nice. <laughs> um, no, I don't you know Scott. in Sun Valley. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll just, it's a one night show. I'll tour only. with Disney. You know, uh, you know Scott. I don't know, and. You're getting degreed soon. I'm getting degreed right. soon. Uh, I may go to seminary You're a man school. of the cloth. Yeah. Um, I don't know where it's going to lead. Uh, you know, and I, this goes back to what I told my son. I'm just kind of waiting to see what life throws at me right now. And 
I know that whatever it is, I'll embrace it and we'll run with it and see, uh, see where it leads us. Bill, an honor. Thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you, Scott. I really you. Hello to your that. wife and your family I as well. I will do that. Thank I you. I wish the Woodpeckers less success. <laughs> yeah. It's a different off, off I think that's a losing <laughs> battle. Hey, thank you all. Thanks to Bill Ingvall, the master communicator who's just simply chosen comedy as his median. Great insight around, as all leaders, lessen the distance between you and your people. Become more relatable because the closer you are to them, the more you can appreciate the role they play in the organization and you can help them achieve their own goals in your company. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you back here next week with a new guest for On Leadership.